women, thank you for being here today. Would you let me do something since it's more men than women? Would you let me speak sort of more directly to men than I would otherwise be able to do or even be inclined to do? Would you let me do that? There is going to be a nice moment or two, and you can just take everything I'm saying about the guys and apply it to yourself. But there's just a little bit more power when I can just go straight to the guys and say something like this, because as a guy, it may be in women too. I don't know. I'm not a girl, so I can't tell. Okay? But I'm telling you, this first question I'm about to ask, when you ask a guy this question, this somehow penetrates right to the heart of a guy and what a guy is. And here's my question. Guys, what does it take to be great? Let me, let me say it even more directly that really hits a guy's heart. What does it take to be a great man? What does it take? What has to happen? Okay, I just want to say something before you answer. This is not a trick question. It is not going to be, well, you have to be a really sensitive listener so that your wife feels like she's been heard. I'm not tricking you. This is a guy thing. This is a guy moment. We've got red meat and paintball shooting happening. We're talking about what does it take to be a great man, to be one of those people that people would say, that's a great man. What does it take? John what has Batman. to happen? What? John Batterman. <laughs> yeah, but that's a great man. But what has to happen for a person to be called a great man? What has to happen in their life? <laughs> that's really funny and not exactly true but very funny what, what does it take this is really basic and simple in order to be called a great man what do you have to do in your life yes great things I told you it was really simple okay it, you know if you don't do great things they don't put your statue up on Mount Rushmore right you had to do something great to get up there right I mean, that's just the way it is. If you're going to be considered and called rightly a great man, then you've got to do something great. <laughs> right? Now, here's how we think of so, so let me just make this clear then. So, right? Now, this is a guy's sermon. So follow me here. Okay? So do we all got it? In order to be a great man, what you have to do is something great. Does everybody get that? Men, do you get that? You say, make, shake your heads yes. I get it. In order to be considered great, I have to do something great. Do you get it? Good, then we're done with the sermon. We can go eat and shoot paintball. And <laughs> a guy's sermon. <laughs> All right, well, sorry. All right, I got too much tetrogen in me to let that happen. Okay. All right. Think about it for a second. One of the things that we say as guys is we say, in order for a person to be great, they have to have lived in times that called for greatness. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, beginning of the country, you know, throwing off the, the, the British Empire and so on. Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln, come on. You know what I mean? The, the, you know, you had to have something big like slavery going on and the country coming to a certain place and all this kind of stuff. That, which you to be a great man, you don't just have to be a great man innately. You have to be in times that can get to greatness, right? That's how we think about it a little bit. But actually, that's not true. I want, you to I want you to rethink this for a second, okay? How long had we been under British rule before these guys got together and did that? This is what we call a great thing. Because they changed the world. They changed the world from what it was to something quite different, right? Now think about that for a second. Why didn't it just keep on going like what it was? The truth is Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln forced the issue of freeing the slaves. Was there conflict in the country about it? Sure there was. But here's how we are as people. There's always stuff going on. Always. There's always stuff going on. But what we do is we, don't, we just sort of live our lives. Let me give you an illustration of this. 
When I was born, there was a wall in Berlin that separated East and West Berlin, and it was the symbol of the Soviet Union, which was, the, which was Russia and all of its side states, right? All the Slavs and Poland and so on, right? When I was born, there was a wall. I was born into a world that had a wall in it, so to me, the wall was a fact. I never, it never occurred to me that the wall might ever come down. It didn't. In fact, people would go to the wall and make speeches and say flowery things in order to score points with people, but nobody actually was doing anything about it, not really. There was a tension between the two of them. They had nuclear weapons. It was a cold war. It was a standoff. And, and why did that change? There's, here's how we think about it. We think, well, there was an inevitability about the change. That is not true. Maybe inevitable in, in terms of hundreds of years. But the truth is, had the generation that lived in a world without the wall died, and only people were alive that had lived with the wall, that wall would have lasted a lot longer. Would likely still be here today. Even if things had changed, there would still be this wall. So what changed it? Well, Ronald Reagan... A single person who lived in a time where there wasn't a wall and said there shouldn't be a wall. And here's what he did. You may think I'm overstating his case. There's a couple of historians sitting right here. You guys, you guys, you know, yell at me if I'm saying it wrongly, but here's the truth. Here's what Reagan did. Reagan said there shouldn't be a wall. How can we make it come down? And here's what he did. He said the first thing is everybody thinks the Soviet Union is this big superpower like we are. They have nuclear weapons, but they're broke. The economy is not working and they don't have money and we're creating all kinds of wealth and prosperity and they can't keep up with us if we start spending money in a certain way that causes them to have to respond militarily. So he started doing these initiatives in order to force the Soviet Union to spend a whole bunch of money that they didn't have and start to reveal cracks in the wall. And then what he did was he said, at the very same time what I'm going to do, and this is a true story now, he went to Pope John Paul II and he said, Poland is the weak link. They have the most independence in them. They're the hardest to defend. They stand out the most and everything else. And he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to send in faxes and mimeograph machines. That, you change your world through faxes and mimeograph machines? Yeah, if there's a state-run control monopoly on the thing and you can't control. At that point in time, there was no way to control the information that was coming out. So with faxes, you could transmit information over long distances instantly. And then you'd mimeograph whatever it was you're mimeographing and spread that out amongst the people. And what happened was all of a sudden people started to rebel. The Soviet Union was reeling from the budget crisis, the, the economic collapse that was going on internally, and they were unable to respond. And all of a sudden, all these other people and all these other states started going, if it's them, it's us too. And the thing hit a tipping point, and all of a sudden it was untenable for the Soviet Union to keep those states within its region. And what ended up happening was the wall fell. And I think we very rightly say that Ronald Reagan was a great man. He will go down in history despite all the right-left politics and anything else you might have thought about him. The bottom line is, is he will go down in history as a great man, a great president even. Not because he did everything properly or perfect or anything else, but because, because now watch, see, he stepped up. <laughs> He said something that was going on in the world shouldn't be going on. The whole world was okay with it. That's really the truth. We were just going on with it. 
And that's what happens until somebody steps up and says, no, this should not be happening. This is not an inevitable thing. These changes in the way that the world is, these are not inevitable. Maybe they're inevitable in the very long term, but they're not, when they come to pass, they come to pass with great friction and with great courage with somebody stepping up and doing something. I want to propose to you today, to all of us, men and women, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things. Good things meaning they're good things, meaning they're God things. Take the word good and just take an O out and you get God, right? God, so that we can do God things. And now let me play with the word a little bit more. So that you can do the great things. The, the changing, the world changing, the different reality that he planned for us long ago. Since before the foundation of the world, he had something for each person in this room to do. And he just said, I want you to step up into it. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. The person who's praying for us, this is awesome. This is a great man already. Will Lees, thank you for the difference you're making in the world, Will. So go ahead and pray for us. Lift up another church. Father, I thank you that you are the great restorer and the great redeemer. You are ultimately the one who can do the greatest things throughout all of human history. Amen. And so, Lord, we just pray that today you would inspire our hearts to be jealous, to make you great. Uh, I pray that we would have a jealousy in our hearts to see you glorified in our world. And Lord, I just pray that your word would penetrate our hearts today and we would really hear from you and be changed and transformed by your word and by having our minds renewed. And so Lord, I just pray this morning also for uh, the women's retreat. Lord, I know that you are there gathered with them as they have church in a different location and in a different way. I just pray that you would be among them and speaking to them as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will just got to the heart of the sermon. You're going to hear this in a really funny way, but nice prayer. Really, really nicely done, okay? That was a great prayer, great man. All right. All right, so welcome to our series, Empowered, Greatest Graphic Ever, Adam, Josh, awesome. Okay, I love this. The imagery behind it, as we talked about before, is, is the tongues of flame that come down in Pentecost and light on each one of them, Okay. All right. Now, what we're going to do in order to go through this, in order to see what a great man is, we're going to look at people in Scripture. Not all of them are great, but we're going to look at the main characters in Scripture a little bit through, and we're, we're going to find a pattern. We're going to find that God reveals something about how to be great. Okay? So we're going to start with Adam. All right? Now, was Adam a great man? No. I don't think so. Somebody else, may, whoever said, yeah, I didn't mean to come against you on that. I couldn't, I couldn't quite tell who it was. But let me just say, I don't think he was a great man. What did he do that was great? Here's what he did do. When his wife did something wrong and he should have not followed her, she said, here, eat. You know, good. Whatever, right? He should have said, no, I'm not going to eat. God told us not to eat. That would have been the great thing to do, right? That would have made him a great man if he'd have stood up and not gone with the flow. This is really interesting that this is men today for this message because this is one of our big problems revealed right there in the garden. Men have a tendency to go with the flow. And if what greatness is, is not going with the flow, is standing up against it, doing something quite distinct from that, men, this is a call. <laughs> Women too. But you get it, right? You're going to have to do something that ain't just in the flow. 
Okay? But Adam is, doesn't turn out to be a great man. What he does is he just goes ahead and he does it. He follows along. And because of that, I think we get our first principle for today. And it goes like this. We step up and do them which makes us glad or we don't and be sad. <laughs> I realize that that's a little sort of, you know, but I'm trying to make it memorable, right? You either do the right thing, you either do the good thing, you either do the thing that stands against the flow and you're glad or you don't and you end up regretting it. I don't want us to live with regrets. I want us to live in victories. I want us to live in moments where God used us and we said, wow. You know, right? So that's the first thing. Now I'm going to go ahead and restart the list again because Adam, I don't know, he's in the garden and I don't know. So let me just restart the list. Abraham, is this a great man? Now people are afraid to say, <laughs> yes, Abraham's a great man. Why is he a great man? Why? There's a couple of big primary reasons, but here's, here's the first one. God comes to him and he says, leave the place of your comfort, of your security, of your family, of your place, of your position. Abraham is a guy who's got the things that all men are working towards, which is trying to make life certain to a certain comfort level, to a certain security level. Abraham has got all that. And God says, come out of that and go somewhere you don't know. And he says, yes. Right there. Great man. He follows God. Now, it gets even greater than that. And let me show you, but it's in the same basic ballpark. Now, he does other things. Do understand, Abraham's not a perfect guy, right? There's a couple of times Abraham says, you know, well, you're my wife, but, you know, you're really cute, and they're going to kill me, and so call yourself my sister. And, and let's, let's his wife get into a situation where it's, like, going to lead to, you know, her being married to somebody else. That's not great, <laughs> okay? Just in case you were wondering, that ain't great. So he's not a perfect man, but here's what he does do. What he does is, now watch how God does it. See, God brings us to the moments of our decisions. He helps get us to where we'll make the right decision. We still have to make the right decision, but he helps us get there. So right before Abraham does the greatest thing that he ever does, Abram to Abraham, right before he does that moment, here's what, he, here's what happens. Lot and he have split because he's become very, they both become very prosperous. Their shepherds are arguing with one another. They're having some disputes. Abram says, whichever one you want, take it. He looks down here and sees this green valley. He looks up there and sees this rocky sort of high desert place. And he says, I'll take the green valley. So he takes the nicer place and he goes down there. Now, four kings come through that green valley and they're just sort of mopping up stuff. They're marauding, you know, they're doing what kings are wanting to do and they're just taking over cities and taking all their goods and whatever they want, right? They're just making themselves richer. They come against actually five kings. These four kings are so strong that five kings, one of them being the king of Sodom, comes out to go to war with them. They get defeated. Lot, the nephew, gets carried off. Abraham's a shepherd. Why didn't he just say this? Abram at that time is a shepherd. Why didn't he just say this? You know, when Lot picked the greener grass, what did he think was going to happen down there? Everybody wants the green grass stuff. Everybody wants the nice place. You know, bummer, but, you know, I mean, his choice. He made his bed, lie in it. Now, that's not what a great man would say, so that's not what Abram said. What Abram said is, I've got to go rescue my nephew. So with only 318 guys, he goes out, attacks by night, uses some cleverness and so on. Bottom line, defeats the other army, gets Lot back, all, you know, all, the whole nine yards, right? A great thing with a bunch of shepherds, okay, right? I mean, that's a great thing. And then, now watch, after these events, 
the story I just told you. After those events, it seems the scripture is making a connection between the two things. Otherwise, it would have just said there was another time when da da da. But he's saying, no, there's a connection between these two things. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me? Look, I'm old. How old is he at this point in time? In his 80s. 83, 87. You can argue it different ways. Bottom line, in his 80s. Right? Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? So a slave born in my house will be my heir. And it was, what's, you know, I'm old. I'm going to die soon. What's left? You know? How can you make me great? Now the Lord came to him. That one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside, God did, and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, your offspring's going to be that numerous. Now let me just say something really quick so that we get what's really going on here. Are there that many Jews in the world? No. But there are that many children of Abraham. Here's what I mean by that. Abram believed God, and God credited it to Abram as righteousness, meaning that you're standing right with me. Now, we hear that, and we're the children of Abram. We're the children of a man who made the right choice. We're the children of a man who was in a culture that was flowing a certain way, and he stood up and said, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm going to go another way. And so we as his children look at that and we have a tendency to undervalue what a radical decision that was. So let, me, let us help us, let us work through how to understand how radical that decision was. With a few very minor exceptions, do you understand that from the moment of Adam until the thousands of years later that we get to Abram, do you understand that the world was filled with people that didn't make that choice ever? There's one guy who walked with the Lord closely and he got taken up and there's a, you know, and, but Noah, really? You know, yeah, kind of okay. I could have done put Noah in the list and so on. But, but I just want you to just kind of flow with this for a second. There's a couple of examples of people that did something. But here's the one thing that even they didn't do. The world was making choices to go their own way all the time. That's what they were doing. Abram is 80 years old, 80 plus years old. He doesn't actually even have the baby until he's 100. But at 80 years old, when there's no chance that he's going to have this baby in his mind or anybody else's mind, you don't have children at 80 years old. Not when, if your wife is 20, okay, yeah. But, you know, not when your wife is trailing behind you by just a few years. She's way too old to have kids. But Abram did something. He believed that there was another reality, that there was another truth that was greater than the one in which he was actually living and could see in the natural. You see it? The decision that he made was radical because he said, God is greater than the world. This is what makes sense. But God is doing something greater than that. And I believe that he will do it. I really do believe it. See that? That makes him great. He becomes, he goes from Abram, which means father or exalted father. He goes to Abraham, which means father of many nations. 
That's us. We're the children of that decision. We're the children that said the culture, the world, the life, the natural bent, the ideas, the flow of everything is this way, but I'm not going to go in that flow. I'm going to come out of it, and I'm going to go a different direction. That makes him great. Now watch this. Here's the principle. Must trust and believe in God's reality over the one we see. I, I just, I, I, I wish somehow I could like crawl into your brains and, and just, just like put a neon sign by this and mark it and highlight it and do everything I want to do. Because this principle right here, this is the one that I really do believe, even as Christians, that we're not living. When we look at the difference between what Christians did in Acts and what Christians do today, this is it right here. What we do today is, is that we look at the world and God is in the world and we look at the, and so we're living a life that is according to a certain flow. Is it the sinful flow of the world? No, not entirely, right? But it's another flow that has an awful lot to do with the world and what it isn't is that moment where God comes in and says there's something entirely different than what you see, than what you know, than what you understand. How are we ever going to get to know God until we get to a place to where God can do something in us that we've not seen? Isn't that true? How are we ever going to get to know the infinite God as long as we stay limited to what we get about him? How are you ever going to get outside of this box? How are we ever going to get outside of our box? Now, what does God do in our lives as Christians? Thank God. He blows up our box all the time, right? You thought I was this big? Turns out I'm this big. Oh, that's another box. Oh, I'm this big. The Christian life is supposed to be one where what we're finding out over and over and over is, is that God is more and more magnificent than anything we ever even have thought or conceived. Anything we could conceive. I mean stuff that blows away the decisions and the life and the path that we're on. That's what God's trying to do. Take us out of that path. Even if we can move that path quite a bit towards him, he's still trying to take us off of that path and evermore into the depths of him. And when we do that, we're starting to do great things. Because we're doing something that's at odds with the way the world is flowing. Now, Isaac, is this a great... Don't, don't answer anymore because I don't want to embarrass anybody. No. Okay? I, don't, I wouldn't call him a horrible man. He didn't do anything terrible. But did he do anything great? Nah, not really. Jacob, is he a great man? Don't answer. I'm going to argue, eh. He's better than Isaac, a lot less than Abraham. Right? I mean, what does he do? He just kind of, you know, he, he deceives people. And, you know, God blesses him. And he argues with God one time and gets in a fight with him and wrestles until the gets displaced and gets called Israel. Right? which is, you know, father of a new nation and a prince of this new nation and so on. But, but bottom line, really, what did he do that was great? If anything, you, when you really look closely at his story, it's a little iffy. You know, it's a little human. It's a little I'm going with the flow quite a lot. And very little of this other thing. Now, he does, in fact, the whole thing's more precious than does, say, his twin, who sells his birthright a thing of God for a bowl of soup, for heaven's sakes. So he's certainly greater than that. Okay? So we can't, we can't write him off. Like I say, he's better than Isaac. But does he really do anything great? Does he really advance? Does he really change the way that things are going into a new thing that then the world goes forward from that point in time? Not really. Other than having 12 boys. I suppose that's pretty great, but whatever. 
Okay? And some girls too, by the way. Joseph, is this a great man? Everybody can answer on this one. Absolutely. Why? This is a guy who gets sold by his own brothers into slavery, into Egypt, and ends up, despite that inauspicious beginning, he ends up becoming the person that makes Egypt the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Now, do say, I want to say something. There appears to be a lot of natural innate ability in Joseph, right? But let's do make something clear. Is that why he was great? He was helping pretty much, right? I mean, he was doing a good job at Potiphar's house, but does that make him great? Because what happens is, is Potiphar's wife thinks he's pretty great, and she wants to sleep with him, and he says no because he's trying to be faithful to his master, so she lies, gets him put in prison. Now he's in prison, and what is it that makes him great? What's that? Yeah. These guys have this dream and nobody knows what to do. And what he does is he says, we dream dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph says, don't interpretations come from God? Remember what we've been talking about. We're talking about this flow here that's going on in the world. And what being great is, is taking, coming out of that and doing something that's different. Standing against what's there, bringing in something different. So that this flow becomes different. He's the one that says, look, there's a thing that God can do, which is interpret dreams. And because of that, that ends up going to Pharaoh, and that ends up going to this lean years, and then or fat years, and store up the grain. Don't just live fat on it. Store up the grain, because there's going to be lean years, and then you're going to end up taking over much of the world. And in fact, that's precisely what happened, and he ran it well. Like I say, a lot of innate ability. But can we say that Joseph is great because Joseph was simply a smart guy, or something that was innate to him? No. The reason why he was great was because he understood that there was this other reality and he was calling it into being. See? So let me do a third principle. Be led by the Spirit. So look at this. See, we step up and do them which makes us glad or we don't be sad. We must trust and believe in God's reality over the one we see. And then we got to be led by the Spirit. And now at this point in time, see what God's done? We are at how many guys now? We're at four guys on our chart plus Adam. So there's five guys all together. How many of the five have been great men? Two. Two of five. Not a good track record. But when Joseph kicks in, God is doing something. He's showing us how people are, how they're going to be. Even though he's put them in positions of responsibility, even though he's blessing them, even though he's doing things through them and stuff like that, right? He's showing us how people are, and it's not working out great. And then we get to Joseph, and all of a sudden there's this new dimension of God coming and doing something through, empowering him, so to speak. And all of a sudden now we get to Moses, and now look. Is Moses great? I mean, yeah, wow. This is just a partial list. Ten plagues delivered out of Egypt, parting of the Red Sea, bitter water made sweet, water from a rock two times, ten commandments, the tabernacle of God, and so much more. Now look at that list and tell me, what, is, what, of, those, what of that list did Moses do? Did Mo was Moses responsible for doing it? Tell me, what on that list did Moses did? Not a thing. <laughs> That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, we think of Moses as a great man. Here's what we think of Moses. Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston does great stuff. Here's who Moses really is. 
right? He kills a guy after 40 years of, of privilege, and then he runs away. And then 40 years later, God finds him, and there's this burning bush, and God says, come back to Egypt and help my people to be delivered. And he says, no. <laughs> and God says, why not? And he says, because I can't talk. Okay, so here's your brother. He'll talk for you. No, I still don't want to go. Well, here's a stick, and it'll turn into a snake. That's cool, right? Will you go now? No, I still won't go. Think about who Moses is, because here's who I want you to understand him as, us. There was a thing that was going on in the world, and God wanted to change it. And he came to a person and said, will you be my instrument of that change? Not will you do it. Will you simply step up? Will you simply move into it? Will you let it be led by the Spirit? Will you do this? See, what we're really saying is, I'll come down and speak with you there. This is about the 70, and he, he says, but this is what I want you to see. I will take of the spirit that is upon you. I'm going to distribute it to other people too, and it's a flame. A lot of the things they'll say, I'll take some of the spirit as if they're taking away spirit from Moses. They're not. It's a flame. If you take a candle, and then you take the flame from that candle, light it in the candle, does it make this, can, does it make this flame any less? No, it just spreads it. That's the nature of the spirit. It doesn't get less because you gave it away. It's not only so big a pie and you gave away a piece, now you got less than a full pie. Okay? What you've got is the fullness of the Spirit, and he's taking the fullness of the Spirit and taking it to another person and another person and another person and another person. And what Moses says is this. You remember when he, when this anointing happens, a bunch of people are all of a sudden empowered to do God's will. And what happens? People come and they say, there's a couple guys down in the camp who were supposed to be up there, but they weren't. There's a couple guys in the camp and they're doing this too. <laughs> make them stop. And Moses says, make them stop. Would that everybody, would that everybody was being empowered like this. See? What's our last, what's our fourth principle? It's our last one of the four. You gotta be empowered. <laughs> you gotta be empowered. Let me, just, let me just take it to one more step. Here's our four. You step up, you trust and believe in God's reality over the one that you see. You be led by the Spirit, you be empowered by the Spirit. And here's where Will's prayer comes in. The truth is, it's not us who is great ever, it's God. Right there, this ought to set every person in the sanctuary free to actually be what God wants them to be. Because if it's you trying to do it, good luck, have fun. When you're too beat to a pulp to be able to stand up again, be sure and come back and ask God to do it his way. But if we get to the place to where we're simply willing to step up, we don't want to live with regret. We want to live in a place of actually trusting his reality over the one that we see. We want to be led by the Spirit. We want to be empowered by the Spirit. When we do that, it's going to take us places. Why? Because it's God doing it through us. Now, you guys get this, but let me just take it a little bit further. Right, so far we've been talking about warrior stuff, you know, shooting paintball, only real stuff, right? Bezalel, this is an artist. We don't think in today's world, do you think of artists as being great? A contemporary artist. Why? Because they're sort of narrow and limited and biased, and there's just such a difficult thing. We don't think of artists as being great, but you do know that that's a relatively modern phenomenon. You do know that artists were considered great massively so throughout history. I mean, if you don't believe me, by the way, Bezalel's filled with the Spirit of God. That's how he does what he does. But that's a Sistine Chapel, and I'm going to show you, that's only part of it, by the way, but I'm going to show you that this is, the, this is like just a part of the ceiling, 
And, and I want you to see something here. You see this one way over here to the left? This is the one where the guy, where Adam is reclining and God is leaning. You know what I mean? The, the, guy, the, the, the mankind is saying, if you want. And Adam is going, I want. <laughs> I mean, God is saying, I want. You know, I'm coming after you. And we're sort of responding, but not really. That very, very famous fresco, look at that. Look at how small that is compared with just even this section of the ceiling. Just so that you understand something, here's how Michelangelo said it. Many believe, and I believe, that I have been designated for this work by God. In spite of my old age, I do not want to give it up. I work out of love for God, and I put all my hope in him. Who's he giving credit to for that ceiling? Right? Over and over and over. His, his point was, he, he, there's several of the quotes I could have used, but his point was he came back over and over to the Pope and said, I've messed it up. I can't do it. There's a thing God wants to do and I just can't get it done. You're going to have to get somebody else to do it. He's the guy that said, now think about his mentality. He's the guy that said, how did you do that beautiful sculpture? And he said, well, I just kept chipping away until all the stuff that didn't belong was gone. And he said it several different ways. But you see what he's saying? You see what his mind there's a thing that's already there that God already wants to do. And all I'm doing is trying to get to that. That's an artist. Let's just keep going. Great men in the Bible. Joshua. Here's a guy. Leads Israel across the Jordan when it's flooding. Can Joshua do that? Can Joshua stop a flooding river that, whose, whose breadth is wider than this entire building? A flood water that is coming down a valley from a huge drainage basin. Stop it up so that a million plus people can walk across on dry ground. Could Joshua have done that? He takes Jericho. Jericho, you need to understand, Jericho is this fortress at a vulnerable place. When it's not in flood stage, the Jordan's just a little creek. And you can walk across it. And so the people that live there have built this massively fortified structure in order to defend against armies that would be coming after them. Jericho's not just some little town. Jericho is this massively fortified thing. And, Jer and Joshua beats it how? By walking around it and blowing a trumpet. <laughs> not necessarily your best military strategy. And by the way, it doesn't lose a man. He takes the whole nation of Israel into a land occupied by giants and wins. It just keeps going. Joshua, the son of Nun, he's filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses laid hands on him. Othniel, this is one of the judges. How does he do what he does? The spirit of the Lord came upon him. He became the judge. He goes to the war. He delivers them. They get 40 years of peace. Okay, Deborah, by the way, women, congratulations, you're in the list, okay? This is a great woman. Why? Because God, she's a prophet. God is on her. She is moving in the things of God. She's calling. She's sensitive. She's listening. God is speaking. She's speaking into this flow, the things of God that is changing that flow to the point that she delivered the entire nation, Right? Gideon, this is, a, this is not, no, come on, let's be real here. Gideon, you know, we think of him as a great man. This is the guy who, God, if you really want me to go against those people, here's what you have to do. You have to make this fleece wet and the ground dry. So the fleece is wet in the morning and the ground is dry. Oh, you know what? That would have been easy because, you know, dew at night and the fleece would still hold the dew. You know what, God? You got to make the fleece dry and the ground wet before I'll go. <laughs> right? But nonetheless, the way that he did what he did was even a little bit afraid, so the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. He blew the trumpet, right? Called the people to it. Samson, how many guys in gyms 
today trying to be Samson? How was Samson Samson? The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Saul. This is a great one because Saul is clearly anointed by the Spirit. The Spirit of God became powerfully upon Saul. This is a guy who's anointed. This is a good cautionary tale for us, though, because he ends up actually losing it. He actually does things in his own way. He continues doing them in his own way. And even though he's in this flow, and even though he's got the Holy Spirit powerfully upon him, God takes it, that Spirit, takes it off of him, actually places it upon David. You know, David, okay, we get it, right? Samuel took the bowl and anointed him. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. We get that the way that he ripped open a bear and ripped open a lion and defeated Goliath and slayed thousands and did everything that he did. We get that he did that. We get that he was a great poet. We get that we get, you know, when I, when I think about David, here's what I think about. You know what a Renaissance man is? A Renaissance man means you can do it all, right? So here's David, the, Renaissance, the original Renaissance man, way before the Renaissance. What he does is he goes out and he slays a thousand people by day and at night he comes home and cooks the perfect Bernays sauce. See, while, by the way, he's composing a poem, while, by the way, he's running a country. The perfect Renaissance man, right? Who could ever be greater than David? Think about how we think about this stuff. When we think of David as being great, what do we think? That David was great. That's not true. David was you and me. David was simply somebody who was allowing the Holy Spirit to move through him to do the things that God wanted him to do, the things that he was called to do since before the foundation of the world. That's the truth. And if you don't believe me, well, then you've got to argue with Jesus. Because Jesus says, I tell you, of all that have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. That includes David, right? He lived before John the Baptist. That includes David. And by the way, all the prophets who did all these incredible things because they were anointed by God and so on and everything else, even the least person in the kingdom of God, that's you and me, is greater than John. Now, I think, do think, I want to say something. I mean this to be inspirational, but I just want to bring it to a, a difficult moment for just one second. Does your life evidence that you're greater than John as a Christian? Does it? If it does not... I love you, but you're in the flow of the world. And that's why it's not. If you would get to where you were actually finding out the flow of God and bringing that to pass into the world, then you too would be great. And let me make this clear. Are there issues today that could make every single person in this place great? Absolutely. You pot, portable water, potable water as they call it, drinkable water, right? This is, this is, millions of people are dying because they simply don't have water. You want to make a great difference? Just start doing that. Start working on getting some water to people. That's actually being done quite aggressively right now, praise God. Malaria vaccines, that'll make it be, you know, you don't have to go to Africa to find something great. You do realize it right here in Seattle that there are people just across the 90 bridge that live in what we would call, it's, Seattle doesn't have a terrible ghetto like LA does or Virginia Beach where I went, but they still have a very, very poor region that, where people live. And you do realize that a human being born in that area, as the, as the crow flies, what, two miles from us? You do realize that a person born in that area has statistically an entirely different reality than anybody born on the east side. 
Almost anybody anyway. You do realize that two miles away from us is the opportunity to be great. Just figure out what to do about this. Figure out this terrible disparity that's taking place between what's happening in these places of despair. You do realize you don't even have to go two miles, by the way. You can go right across Northeast 8th Street because right across Northeast 8th Street are people from all over the world that have all kinds of things that need to be helped, that need to be made a difference in. This is why Jubilee Reach is a great ministry. Jubilee Reach is something God raised up through us and other churches, and Jubilee Reach is a, is a ministry that is ministering to these people that have come, and they're teaching English, and they're bringing people, and that is a great ministry, and the people that work in there have a sense of that they're doing something great. Because they are. They're making a difference. There's a flow of life that's happening, and it's really easy to drive right on by. Just in the flow. But if we don't, if we stop, and if we say, what do you want me to do? You do realize you don't even have to go across the street to be great. You do realize that there's people that you walked into this building with today, and you looked at them, and you said something like, that person's really got their act together. You know, I'm struggling. I got some issues in my life, and I got problems. And I look at that person, and you know, they seem to have it all together, and they got everything going on and everything else. And the truth is, is in their life, is something going on that is just devastating them. Maybe relational, maybe financial, maybe sin. There's things that are going on in their life that are just killing them, literally. Spiritually and physically, it's killing them. And all we have to do to be great is to be praying for each other in a way that the Holy Spirit could say, I want you to go out to dinner with this person. I want you to go spend time with this person. I want to speak to you about them and I want you to be able to speak into their life in a way that's going to change their flow. This is for every person. The person who trusts me will not only do what I'm doing, but even greater things. This is Jesus. Because I, on my way to the Father, am giving you the same work to do as I did. <laughs> you can count on it. <laughs> you can count on two things. One, put the emphasis on a different syllable than we normally do. See, the emphasis we normally put on that is, I can do greater things than Jesus can do. But here's what he's saying. Here's, a, here's the second emphasis. There's the same stuff that was going on in my day is going on in your day. You found a way to be comfortable. You found a way to be set. You found a way to be, and the fact of the matter is, there's a flow happening, and you're missing what I could do. You're missing what I want to do through you. Things that before there was a you, I had it in my heart to give it to you so that you could do something great. Man. <laughs> God. Make us empowered. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, come and empower us. I mean, fill us to overflowing. Fill us. Empower us. In Jesus' holy and precious name, only you can, but you do. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, empower us.
God, we get that we need to be open to it. We need to be willing to step out. We need to be listening to the Spirit. We need to be praying. We get that there's prep things that are going on. But in the bottom line analysis, God, we who are stubborn-hearted break through that and cause our hearts to be like rivers of water that you can now direct to exactly where you want us to go. And then, God, move us into that and empower us that we might, not we are personally, but that you might make all the difference in that person's life. In Jesus' holy and precious name, open our eyes. Let us not just see you (laughs) bigger and bigger, but let us see the things that your heart is burning for, the needs the things that we've walked right by. Let us see it. And let us start going in there with you. And then you making that difference through us. Bend over and grab this communion from in front of you, would you? Lord, in this one cup, the bottom cup is the bread, is the body, is the, is the life that we once led that, that because we just drove by, because we were just in the flow, even though we didn't know it was breaking our life. We were just trying to be comfortable and secure and not upset the apple cart all the time. But the truth of the matter is, (laughs) it was actually breaking us. Because we weren't entering into the greatness. We weren't entering into the fullness. We weren't entering into who you are. So Jesus, you come, you die, and then you rise again. And what you do in that is you heal us and you make us whole yet once again body, soul, and spirit. So we take this body together now to be made whole in you. Thank you, Lord. And now in Jesus' most glorious name, we lift up this cup in which is the life that you have already ordained for us since before there wasn't us. And in Christ Jesus, you made this life absolutely here now. And if we don't walk into it, it's just us not choosing to. So God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, by taking this cup, every person in this place that takes this cup says, I choose. I choose. I choose to go with you. Lead me. Show me. Move me. In Jesus' name, take this cup together. Ushers, thank you for coming forward. It's great to have the Sheldons back. Awesome to see you guys. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name on this first fruit Sunday, we pour out into your kingdom. We say yes. We choose to go your way. We don't go with the flow that is breaking this country and breaking us. We go with the new, we go with the real, we go with the more real that's greater than. We go with you. We put ourselves in your economy where God, you can do the most miraculous things. And God, we need miraculous things done. The the Jesse McCracken thing, God, we need a miracle. Bring us a miracle. The tithe, God, pour into us that we can pour out in this community so much more. All of it. Lord, in Jesus' name, we choose you. Thank you, Lord. In the splendor of 
looking